Welcome to another episode of Highway 89, Utah's most scenic musical byway. I'm Walter Rudolph. In our hour, we're going to hear highlights from La Traviata, the immensely popular opera of the Italian composer Giuseppe Verdi. It's based on the book of Alexander Dumas, the Younger. Over 20 films of this story have been made, most recently Moulin Rouge with Nicole Kidman, but the most, if, the most memorable of all of those films is no doubt Greta Garbo in Camille. This is a quintessential opera. By quintessential, I think it can be referred to uh, in a story that uh, responds to maybe four or five statements. A man and a woman meet at a party. They run away together. Things get complex. They separate. They reunite. And of course, the perfect ending is she dies in his arms. Now, our producer for Highway 89 likes to refer to Traviata as that gloriously ill-fated love story. And indeed, that's exactly what it is. Let me introduce our guests, who are all members of the company Utah Lyric Opera performing Traviata. Stephen Dubberley is the conductor, the music director, and makes it all come together. Isaac Hurtado is Alfredo, the tenor. Kirsten Piper Brown is Violetta, La Traviata, the lost one. That's, and, and then we have Christopher Holmes, who of course is Germain Père, the father of Alfredo, who causes so much trouble. More on each of them as we continue through the hour, but let's hear some music right away. And it's going to be the duet between Germain Père and Violetta in act two. This is that turning point of the opera where it gets complex. Alfredo's father does not approve of Violetta, who is of course in love with Alfredo, and coaxes her into ending the relationship with his son. Oh, 
The tears that go through your soul as you hear that duet from the second act of La Traviata, Verdi excelled in duets between fathers and daughters. This is not a daughter-in-law quite, but it certainly qualifies as one of those duets. And we've heard it sung by Kirsten Piper Brown and Christopher Holmes who are singing it in Utah Lyric Opera's production of La Traviata, Stephen Dubberley accompanying at the piano. On Classical 89 and Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio, you're listening to Highway 89. I'm Walter Rudolph, and we're featuring music from La Traviata with musicians from the production presented by Utah Lyric Opera. Christopher Holmes is artistic director of Utah Lyric Opera. He's performed over 35 operatic roles all over the country in various opera company. He's also a familiar name in Utah Valley since he grew up here performing in local productions. 
Christopher, let me begin by asking you, what does it take to put together an opera like La Traviata? <laughs> it takes uh, about 100 emails a day for, for about a year. <laughs> I'm sure that's not exaggerated. No, it's now, not. <laughs> with your ties in Utah opera, or in, in Utah Valley, how has it made it easier to stage production here than if you were going somewhere and having to start from scratch? Uh, that's a great question. I, I think it's helped a lot. Um, you know, I, I've lived in Springville and in Provo and, and different locations, and, and, and it's really nice to be able to reach out to people that, that, that are familiar to me and I'm familiar to them and say, hey, you know, I'm doing this, and, and they're, they're a little more enthusiastic and ready to come out and try an opera experience. I might ask you also, how did, how did the company settle on Traviata? <laughs> well, um, of course, I wear the hat of producer, and, and one of the things I have to think about is what will attract the, the, the greatest, greatest amount of, of audience members. And uh, obviously, La Traviata does that, but it's popular for a reason, because uh, it's, it's a great piece of music and a great drama. And uh, I thought it would be a, a great way to try and introduce this great art form to the people here in Utah Valley. And what are some of the the experiences you've had with Traviata as a performer? You've done previous productions. Yeah, I, I've I've sung Baron Dufault and and and, and Germain on a couple different occasions in the past decade, I guess, and uh, that remains a favorite of mine. I, you know, I heard it as a teenager on CD in my parents' opera collection, and uh, it's had a special place in my heart ever since. And one of the most special of the baritone arias is Di Provenza il Mar. That's right. No one will want to miss you hearing, singing that. <laughs> oh, thank you. Stephen Dubberley is seated at the piano and is going to highlight some of our musical themes. But Stephen, let's, let's get acquainted here for a little bit. You're an associate professor of conducting and ensembles and music director of the opera program at the University of North Texas. That's right, in Denton, Texas. And you're also the Fort Worth Opera chorus master. That's right. I enjoy that very much. And Fort Worth Opera is a wonderful little company that's had great success. And you lecture frequently on opera. And yes. I think with Dallas Opera. I do that a lot with Dallas Opera. Uh, they, they use me to do their blah, blah, blah. Uh, <laughs> I had occasion to, to witness what a phenomenal memory you have last night at a rehearsal as you came in and you identified every single individual at the performance by name. I was uh, stunned, but that's that's a great ability, but a valuable one as well. Well, that's very kind. I'm, I'm not sure how much of it is ability and how much of it is just plain effort, but I do feel that people's names are important, and it's been such a joy for me to meet uh, on every level here in Utah, which I've never visited before. Uh, the members of the cast, the members of the chorus, the members of the orchestra, uh, members of the board, people from the community, and uh, these are all not only names and faces, but people uh, whom I'm very glad to have gotten to know and to work with. I admired, too, your rehearsal technique. You had the time for a performance of the opera, and yet you did so much more in that same limited amount of time. We got a lot done. We have a wonderful orchestra and uh, uh, Obviously, uh, opera is what you call an imperfect art, uh, and you have to 
go for what you what can be done. And we got a lot done in that rehearsal with the singers and orchestra and very excited about this week of rehearsals and uh, the culmination, of course, in the two wonderful performances. Well, let me turn some time to you now to just acquaint us with the musical world of La Traviata. Oh, I'd be delighted to talk about this. This is such a beautiful opera. And uh, it must be said, uh, among the many things that make it beautiful, uh, the, the main thing, I think, is the character of Violeta herself, who she is. She is a woman of ill repute. When we first meet her, we're at a splendid party at her house, and everybody is dazzled by her beauty. You know, Violeta is based on a real character, uh, a woman who actually existed in history in the 1840s, Marie Duplessis. This was a woman who was born of peasant stock, Basically, her father sold her into prostitution, and it's amazing that by the age of 18 or 19, she was uh, highly uh, valued as a courtesan in Paris and had a salon that everybody went to, people like Chopin and George Sand and people like that. She was uh, an amazing story, a person who taught herself to read and uh, really just dazzled and uh, uh, attracted people from all over the world, and she had a very early, untimely death uh, of tuberculosis. But uh, the story is based on that real person, and she shines through on every page at every moment. There are very few moments in which she's not on stage, and uh, the story of her life, the suffering that she endures, the nobility of character that she shows, the transformations that she goes through. Uh, really are what the opera is all about. And when we first meet her, we don't think of her as the, the true noble character. We see her in her shallow environment uh, in Paris, and a young man comes to the party. His name is Alfredo Germont, and he's the one who introduces her to something called love. She worships something called pleasure, and he... Uh, introduces her to true love. He says, I have loved you for a year, and I've loved you with a love that is the heartbeat of the universe, mysterious and ancient, cross and delight to the heart. And when he sings that, he sings it, and it's going to be a theme that is going to recur throughout the opera, this beautiful scale, as he's saying, amor, meaning love, amor que palpito del universo entero, love which is the heartbeat of the entire universe. beautiful melody which is in many ways the foundation of the entire opera and that is the theme of love she takes that theme once the party is over and thinks about it and says could I 
how could I refuse a love like that? I've never known the experience of loving someone and being loved in return. And she contemplates that life in a fantastic aria, Sempre Libera, in which she rejects that life, rejects the idea of love, and decides that she's going to dedicate herself only to pleasure. And she talks about dying in the pursuit of pleasure, and that's the first hint we get. Actually, it's not the first hint. We've gotten some other hints uh, in the party before, but it's a strong hint that she's dying, and we will find out later that she is afflicted with a terrible disease. And... Uh, that idea of love, which she rejects, then we see that she has accepted because in the second act, suddenly she is living with Alfredo. She has forsaken her life of luxury and pomp and splendor. She has forsaken her friends and her uh, her way of life, uh, her uh, uh, questionable way of life, and she has given herself to the love of this one man. And we find out in the duet that we just heard uh, with the father that she has repented and that God has forgiven her for her sins. And then in that haunting duet which we heard, he manages to convince her that she is not uh, forgiven by God. And because of that, uh, she is condemned and she needs to leave his son. And he does it uh, with all sorts of uh, reasoning. He does it uh, through... Uh, being both uh, smooth and brutal at various points. And what happens is when Alfredo comes back in and she sees him, she says to him, love me, Alfredo, love me as much as I love you, as we see that she's contemplating this horrible act of leaving him, lying to him, and telling him that she's going back to her old life. And she sings uh, what you can hear, uh, a melody that is derived from uh, the love theme that we just played. She sings, Amami Alfredo, love me Alfredo. poignant melody as we hear the one who was introduced to love, the one who was a prostitute, the one uh, who didn't know real love now comprehends it so well that she's going to sacrifice herself and her own life because she loves this young man so much that she will give up everything for him. And those two themes, uh, as you hear how they're related, are really uh, what anchor most of the music that we hear in the opera. Let me play just a little bit of the beautiful prelude, the prelude uh, which takes place before the party. And we hear this beautiful uh, shimmering sound in the strings that's going to uh, erupt into that beautiful love theme. Thank you. 
I'll interrupt it right there at that wonderful moment. So that is the way the opera begins. And then, of course, we get a lot of boisterous music. We get dance music. We get music uh, of the party. And probably, of course, the best known music from that scene is what they call the libiamo, the drinking song, when they say, let's drink. It's very interesting because Alfredo sings a stanza, and then Violeta sings a stanza. And his stanza is saying, let's drink to love. And particularly, let's drink to Violeta because she is so beautiful and she inspires me to love. And she immediately responds by saying, no, I will divide my time among all of you equally. Everything is folly if it's not pleasure. Love is a fleeting thing. We need to uh, disdain it and just pursue pleasure. And so they have this wonderful back and forth where she says, don't talk to me about love. I know nothing about love. And he says, it's my destiny to talk to you about love. And that's all wrapped around this fantastic drinking theme. Which is really just uh, delightful and known, of course, uh, throughout the world. There's so many fantastic themes. What Verdi was was a master of theater and he was known for using really commonplace elements banal elements simple chords simple almost violent rhythms and weaving them into an incredibly complex and compelling drama and that's what he does this is the first opera and probably the only one really aside maybe from Otello toward the end of his life where he chooses purposely to let uh, the scope be incredibly intimate rather than grandiose. There's not a lot of spectacle in Traviata. Instead, everything leads toward this theme of, of redemptive love that Violetta demonstrates. And within it, it is so taut, it is so uh, compelling, uh, these, this wonderful story told not just with beautiful music, but with music that is at every step dramatic. And that's why uh, I want to mention the one person in our production that we haven't talked about, which is the stage director. Of course, we're on radio here, and we very often associate opera with radio and with something that is listened to. But opera is, is also meant to be watched, and it's been such a pleasure for me to work with Liz Hansen, our stage director, because her job is to make the music become visual, and it's been a real joy for me to observe uh, how she's done that and to collaborate with her. I'm wanting to ask you about Verdi singers because we hear very specifically about Verdi sopranos and Verdi baritones. What does it take to become a Verdi soprano and a Verdi baritone? It's a great question and it's a fantastically interesting uh, concept. Verdi was an heir to this wonderful tradition called bel canto, the music of Rossini and Bellini and Donizetti. And probably the voices that were most prized for the bel canto composers were uh, a prima donna who could sing uh, very high, who could sing all sorts of vocal fireworks and roulades and scales and uh, trills, and then a tenor we realize uh, that it's really with Lucia, 1835, so that would be 15, uh, 18 years before Traviata, that we first get this kind of tenor, the heroic tenor who can sing the do di petto, as they call it, who can sing a high C in his chest voice. And that, those are the two 
roles that we associate most with bel canto, with the music of Bellini and Donizetti. When Verdi came along, he didn't have the finesse that Rossini and Bellini and Donizetti had. He was always going for the effect. And it's very uh, remarkable that early in his career when he was uh, composing Macbeth, he said very clearly, I don't want a beautiful bel canto prima donna soprano for this role. I want an ugly person who can act and who can just uh, really take the paint off the walls in the way she sings. And so he preferred larger voices. He preferred voices uh, that were more declamatory than uh, lyrical. And, but now, looking back, we see that he's still in that tradition of bel canto. And the role of Violetta is amazing, the soprano role, because she has to do all the beautiful, limpid uh, vocal acrobatics uh, that Lucia does, for example, by Donizetti, but she also has to have a very powerful voice. She has to sing very directly and uh, very loudly and also uh, with great uh, expressive power. Verdi valued that in his singers more than anything else, their ability to act in singing. And then, of course, the baritone, the great uh, baritone roles that uh, Verdi uh, invented and, of course, uh, Traviata, we have that wonderful role of Germont, and he's following uh, in the footsteps of, of baritones like Macbeth, baritones, of course, like Rigoletto, and uh, as you say, baritones who very often are father figures, and that central conflict and central uh, drama uh, about fathers and daughters is very, very close to his heart. And the tenor in La Traviata, the baritone, pardon me, the baritone in La Traviata has to have such a booming, powerful voice and yet has to be able to sing so lyrically and to sing uh, with such great uh, lyrical expressivity. And then, of course, we do have, we must not forget that the, also the tenor role in Traviata is a fiendishly difficult role and calls for the very highest level of singing. We're really in, a, in an in-between place here in Traviata. Ten years later, we will be having Wagnerian singers who sing almost exclusively in a declamatory way while the orchestra takes the melody and has the lyricism. But here in this in-between stage in Traviata, we're, we're uh, functioning under the rules of and in the tradition of bel canto music, but Verdi is pushing it to a dramatic extreme and demanding more and more of the voices. So it's incredibly challenging and uh, an incredible um, honor to be able to work with these wonderful singers. Well, speaking of the demands that it, uh, Verity puts on the expressivity of the voice, let's, let's move on to the letter scene. Now, letter arias are not uncommon in opera. But I dare say there probably is none that are more famous than this one in La Traviata. It begins with uh, Teneste la Promesa, which is the actual reading of this letter from Père Germont, the father. This is in the fourth act. And then Violetta continues, Adio del Passato.
entraño solo. Il vostro sacrificio io stesso li ho svelato. Egli a voi tornerà per suo perdono. Io pur verrò. Curatevi. Mertate un avvenir migliore. Giorgio Germò. E tardi!
Adio del Passato, the letter aria from the fourth act of La Traviata, sung by Kirsten Piper Brown. On Classical 89 and Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio, you are listening to Highway 89. I'm Walter Rudolph, and in this edition, we're featuring the music of La Traviata with musicians from Utah Lyric Opera. Kirsten Piper Brown, I want to ask you so many questions, and we just won't have that much time, but you've performed principal roles with Opera Memphis, Cincinnati Opera, Virginia Opera, Israeli Opera, Utah Festival Opera, Opera Colorado. You've been out internationally and performed at the Hamburg State Opera, the Deutsche Oper am Rhein in Dusseldorf, Semper Opera in Dresden, the Royal Festival Hall in London. I mean, that's what a resume. Mm -hmm. Already went what a resume. Let me talk about your, your early years. Mm -hmm. When did you start singing, and what kind of singing was it? Um, I started singing, um, I guess, in elementary school, I guess, uh, technically. <laughs> but um, I did not start, and, I, and then I was doing mostly musical theater and choir all throughout high school. In college, I was a music history major and sang in the choir and uh, didn't really sing opera at all. And in fact, I did not attend my first opera until I was in college. Um, and so I actually got my start in music professionally at um, public radio, in public radio, national public radio. So, um, and I worked for Performance Today and got to listen to not much opera <laughs> because they didn't like vocal music on the radio. Uh, oh, yes. But <laughs> sound familiar. What a tale. Uh, but um, but uh, I, I guess I, I got my start singing uh, opera in, in graduate school um, when I left NPR after about a year and a half and decided to go pursue my master's and see what I could do with it. Well, what sparked it? Uh, what sparked it, um, I think, was actually working in my job at National Public Radio, where um, I was an editorial editorial assistant for Performance Today, and my job was to call uh, musicians and see, you know, what the story was and see who who was in town. And I think I remember trying to give a call to Johnny Thibaudet and Renee Fleming, um, their managers, and they were saying, oh, well, they're out recitaling in Tokyo or wherever they were at the time, and I just thought that sounded so fun and fulfilling. And I needed to go and try to do that. <laughs> so you got an injection, and it's now in your blood. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Isaac. Yes, Isaac Hurtado has a resume as equally impressive as everyone else that we've been talking to. But one of the more relevant, po relevant points that I want to bring out during this hour is that you are the education director at Utah Lyric Opera and director of the Utah Vocal Arts Academy, which in works in conjunction with Utah Lyric Opera. That's right. Are any of your students participating in this production? I actually have, I think, four of my students really? participating in the chorus, yes. Youngsters um, around age uh, 18, 19, that, are, uh, that actually auditioned along with everybody else and managed to, to get in, so I was really happy. Uh, oh, what a terrific yeah. experience at that age to be able to get around people like you and Kirsten and Christopher and Stephen to experience what opera really can be. Yeah. What do you hope they'll take away from this experience that they're having? You know, what I'm trying to do with all of my students is to give them the magical moment that I first had when I was that age and went to my first opera, saw the curtain rise and heard the orchestra 
streaming from the pit, um, saw the visual aspect of opera, and then heard this magical, um, unamplified human voice, um, you know, penetrating all the way to the back of a 3,000-seat theater. And feeling what I felt that day is what I want to give give my students is the opportunity to participate in that and to experience that, whether they go on as opera singers or not, um, to give them that musical magic would be my goal. Well, I have to ask you, what was that experience? What was the opera? Oh, the opera was Tosca, Puccini's Tosca. Yeah. Yeah. And where was it? It was at Utah Opera. Um, our high school had uh, arranged to get a dress rehearsal um, you know, showing. Um, and so we all went up on a bus and and I remembered some of the tunes. My my dad is a is a tenor um, himself and had played a lot of the tunes for us growing up. And so when I heard some of those themes being played, I, I just jumped out of my seat. And I actually bought a ticket for the next night and came back <laughs> and saw it again. So I was done. And the story, the story of people who have this experience, you'll hear it over and over and over again. So here we are now. We haven't heard you yet. And we're going to hear you in this final duet between Alfredo and Violetta, Parigi Ocara. Would you set that up just for us a little bit? Absolutely. Um, this comes at the very end of the opera, just after what we just hear, heard Kirsten sing. Um, Alfredo's father has written her and told, told her that Alfredo and, and he would, be, would come and see her again. Um, she's kind of just passing her days sick by herself, uh, impoverished, and she's been missing Alfredo. And all the misunderstandings have been worked out, and he, he finally gets to come and, and see her. And in this duet, he tells her that uh, they have a bright future ahead, and, and they, can, they can leave Paris and go out into the country again like they had before and live the rest of their lives together. So all the money is gone, and we're going to come to the inevitable end of La Traviata. Here's the duet, Parigi Ocara, with Isaac Hurtado and Kirsten Piper Brown. Oh, no. 
That concludes another hour of Highway 89. We extend a special thanks to our guests, Christopher Holmes, Stephen Dubberley, Isaac Hurtado, and Kirsten Piper Brown for coming and performing for us. They're all part of Utah Lyric Opera's current production. Utah Lyric Opera hopes to introduce individuals of all ages to the beauty, the literature, culture, and history of outstanding opera and music theater. For information about Utah Lyric Opera, visit utahlyric.org. Highway 89 takes you to any number of musical destinations, every one of them musical and memorable. We welcome your questions and comments about this program. Simply email us at highway89 at byu.edu. Highway 89 is a production of BYU Broadcasting. The recording engineer is Mark Waite. The show's producer is Jackie Tataishi. I'm Walter Rudolph. Thanks for listening.